You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. Mindfulness is presence, awareness. It's paying attention to what's happening within us and around us. Mindfulness increases our emotional, physical, and mental well-being. It can also enhance our focus and productivity, and there are many health benefits from practicing mindfulness and meditation, from lowering blood pressure to increased longevity. Perhaps most importantly in today's chaotic world, mindfulness strengthens our ability to be more compassionate to ourselves as well as others. Hello, Dana. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. How are you? I am good. Thank you. How are you? Good, good. Good. Excellent. We're on each coast. We're good on each side. That's a good balance. Before we jump into the book, I wanted to start with what Ubuntu means. Am I saying that right? Or Ubuntu? Which is what you named your art gallery after. Yeah, it's Ubuntu. So, you know, I'm going to be quick, but I have to share with you how I stumbled across this term. Ubuntu means I am because we are, or I am because you are. It's a, it's a, it's an African term. And my children, they're about 11 and 13. And when they were young, we're talking like, like one and two, I stumbled across, and I'm sure your listeners have heard or seen this story on social media, but I stumbled across a story of an anthropologist, um, studying a tribe in Africa. And when he was waiting for his transportation to bring him back to the States, He proposed a game for the children to play because he was hanging out with the children uh, from the tribe. So he had some candy that he had bought in the city. And he said, you know what? I'm going to put it by this tree and we're going to race. And whoever gets there first gets to eat the candy. So it's like, all right, guys, stand over there and line up. And on three, you're going to race to the tree. You know, they got all excited and they line up. And he's like, one, two, three. And on three, they all linked arms and they all ran together. And dumbfounded, the anthropologist walks up to one of the girls and he's like, well, what are you, they're eating the candy and they're having the best time, you know? And he walks over to one of the girls and he's like, well, what are you doing? Like, why would you, why would you share essentially? And she says, Ubuntu. I, I can't be well, happy and whole unless we're all well, happy and whole. I am because we are. And when I saw that story, I was so taken by it that everything in my life became Ubuntu. My children, you know, new rules in the house. Everything's Ubuntu. Everybody's sharing. My kids don't even know it's not a part of the general vernacular. Like, you know, like, so they just use this word. So when I started to paint, it was clear that if it brought me so much joy to create and it brings you joy to see, then it's Ubuntu. And this idea of uh, collaboration and community as opposed to competition, it's so important. And so, yeah, so I share that story with you because I love telling it, but I share it because you really have to know the the impact, the story behind it to truly get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, no, that's beautiful. Oh, I'm glad I asked that question. So in the book, you include 
your own personal experiences and examples. And I'm just wondering, was that challenging for you to kind of open up and be so vulnerable like to the whole world? That's, that's a really good question, actually. You know, at the time, no, because I've, I've written the book. I was so far ahead of having gone through those things that it was just easy. It was almost like I was like talking about somebody else. But the interesting thing is when I sat down to actually write it, it was quite cathartic. Like there were things that I thought I put to rest that I actually put to rest for the last time in writing it. But people had said to me, oh, you're so brave. You share these person. And I'm like, brave. And then I released the book. I released the book in April. And I remember the day it was going out there. I was like, oh, holy crap. Like people, you know, like I had that moment of me, not only am I naked, but like now I'm walking in the street like that, you know? But uh, I say that tongue in cheek, but it was the truth shall set you free. You know what I mean? There's nothing to be fearful of. Either people receive it or they don't, you know? That is interesting. And and I know because I share some personal stories throughout this podcast. And sometimes afterwards, I'll have that feeling of, I didn't really know that's not quite done yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it brings <laughs> up a little bit of, so I told Yeah, that. yeah, that feeling. Like, there's Was I one, ready? <laughs> and there's one story um, I talk about, you know, a love that I had lost in my 20s. When I was writing it, I had to stop and just sob. And I was like, oh, okay. Or my mother, I always joke, I forgave my father once and I forgave my mother 50 times. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I thought I forgave her. Oh, here we go again. And then it comes back, right? Yeah. And I think that's an important point to make for anyone that that is doing that inner work is, and I don't know whether it's the ego or whether it's truly we feel good in that moment, but it happens over and over again where we think, oh, okay, I'm done with that. And then it comes up again. And in my coaching sessions, it's a regular comment. I thought I was over that already, or I already did that. And it's like, you're not done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Long- you're never done. You're never done. And, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Buddha's Four Noble Truths. You know, it's just the whole philosophy of Buddhism. But when they talk about the Eightfold Path, it basically, it's, you know, right action, right meditation, right intention, whatever it is, but all of these things to release from pain and suffering. But they talk about it being a spiral staircase, not a staircase up. So what do you do? You you meet it, you overcome it, you continue to move up that staircase, you see it again, but you see it in like the light version, right? You know what I mean? Right. Like, you know, forgiving my mother light. <laughs> and then you go around again, you know, forgiving my mother zero calories. And then you go again and, you know, like peeling the onions. Sometimes you get those big chunky pieces and sometimes you get those little uh, like skin-like pieces. But yeah. Oh, that's the a great answer. still there though, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, there are 10 major lessons in the book, which you call recommandments. Yes. Do you want to share what that means to you? Why you call them instead of the 10 commandments, the 10 recommendments? You know, I, I make the joke that, you know, because no one's telling you what to do. I'm recommending you do it because I think it's a good idea. But the reason I called it that is because there's no real story behind it other than there were 10. I thought it was catchy and I'm uh, I'm a little irreverent. <laughs> like, I thought, like I think I'm funny. So there's nothing, no deep, no religious connotation. I just happened to, and I'm sure your audience is going, yes, Dana, you're very funny, but I think I'm funny. So that's kind of it. <laughs> well, funny aside, they're actually really profound. So I do want to say that. And, and as I mentioned right before we started this interview, I did find the sixth one um, quite interesting as it relates to mindfulness. And so I thought we could start with that and then we'll just see where we go with this. But 
The sixth recommandment is I shall not judge, attach, or expect anything from anyone or any situation. Rather, I shall recognize and understand that judgment, attachment, and expectation rob me of my peace. This one, the reason it really grabbed my brain is because, well, there were several reasons. It's packed full of stuff related to mindfulness, but non-judgment is one of the most challenging mindfulness topics I teach because people are very stuck in the belief that there has to be a right or wrong, good or bad. You mentioned pass or fail in the book. It's very black and white thinking. And so I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners how judgment creates much, if not all, of our suffering. Ooh, you know, I refer to, because I teach a workshop based on 10 recs on the Uniquely You platform that you had mentioned. And when I talk about judgment, attachment, and expectation, I call it the the three sisters because they're really, they are all enmeshed with one another. But this idea of judgment, you asked how it robs us of our peace. But I, I, what I really want to touch on is how it could not rob us of our peace. We need, as human beings or any really living being, a level of discernment to get through life, right? I Like the child, touch the stove, you burn your hand, now you know it's hot. You discern that when the red thing is on the stove, you don't touch it. And there is that level of discernment. The reality is, and I touch on this in the first two recommendments, is that it's all just information. It's all just information. And then we have this emotional guidance system that is our is our GPS. It helps us navigate the information. So something happens and it feels good. Oh, I should do more things like that. And if something happens and it feels yucky, then I should do less things like that. But what happens is as we evolve and are conditioned, whether it's implicit or explicit, right? You know, whether they're straight out telling us we're terrible or we're just understanding we're terrible, we're still being conditioned. And when that happens, we attach these beliefs to this information, then we become uh, entrenched in these emotions, right? So when that happens, discernment becomes judgment because we attach our emotion and we attach a, a belief system to it. And very often, if we're not paying attention, our belief system is usually irrational. And it's usually something that we picked up along the way that we never really revisited. And it really no longer serves us. I always use the example of my, my uh, again, my 11 and 13-year-olds. They just in the last year or so since they're in middle school really recognize that there's no Santa. Like they're old, right? But they really recognize. And it's because we're like, they're like, Santa's coming this year. We're like, is he? Like, we're like tired of the charade, right? So so the way I looked at it is Nala, Nala's the elder. When Nala was four years old or somewhere around that age, we told her, fat guy in a suit, comes down the chimney, travels the world. When you're good, he brings you toys. And she went through her life believing that because an adult in her life that she trusted and loved told her that. So why would she ever question it? And even though as she got older, the writing was on the wall, you know, there's like a Walmart sticker on something that they got, but that was the belief. And until she got old enough with her young adult brain or her adolescent brain and went back and revisited that belief of that small child, only then can she really look at it again. So we adults are all walking around with the banged up, you know, four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old based on the information we've received. And we're creating judgments about ourselves, 
about others, about the world around us. What we're not doing is we're not going back and questioning, well, are our beliefs about this rational? You know, ooh, she was married at a wedlock. Well, who are you to say whether or not that's an appropriate thing? Somewhere along the way, you picked up that that was a sinful thing. But the reality is, did I say got married at a wedlock? <laughs> yeah. I knew you meant pregnant. I knew you meant pregnant. You ever play something over in your head and you're like, wait, but she had a child out of wedlock, right? <laughs> but the information is a man and woman got together in some sort of loving experience. You know, again, there's a spectrum, but whatever. And there, a baby was conceived in love and this child is beautiful and full of love. It's us that puts all this judgment around it. So when we recognize, here's the longest version of the answer to that question. <laughs> You're welcome. But when we recognize that it's all just information, we have all these emotional attachments because of whatever pain we've experienced or whatever conditioning. And if we could just take a second and back up and ask ourselves logically, what's the evidence here? It's easier to live without judgment. You know, not this is bad. No, this doesn't serve me. This doesn't feel good. I will not participate in this. And life gets a lot easier. Oh, it does. It it made the biggest difference in my life, just that one facet of it. That's a big one, right? How much I judged. <laughs> I judged. Yeah, all. right. <laughs> it's funny because I never thought I was judgy. Like I was always kind of pretty cool about things, but like I catch myself. I'm like, oh, that's judgy and that's judgy. No, it's just stuff. It's just info. Yeah. Yeah. It's just what we do with it. I have to say, I immediately resonated about the attachment to stuff because I have the same rule in my house or similar that you have in yours, which is if something new is coming in, something that's existing needs to be donated. <laughs> it needs to go. Can you explain basically how our stuff relates to our emotions and why it's therefore important to release those attachments? Ooh, so, you know, very often we don't even realize it. We put value on these things because often there is an emotional attachment. You know, it, it, the example that I use in the book, I'll just, you know, explain that one. You know, I had a boyfriend when I was 21. I met him in Italy. It was, you know, one of those perfect romances. And uh, he passed six months later. He was killed in a car wreck. And I had a trunk full of things that I had put away that when I moved in my adult life, I always went in the back of a closet. And when I finally opened that trunk and I saw the things from him, I realized that I had never properly dealt with my emotions. I never properly grieved it. I was 21 years old and I was like, that chapter's over, moving forward, because whatever my, again, my conditioning, my damage, my whatever. And... I had the opportunity at, oh my God, 50 years old to open the trunk and to go through it and put those things to rest. And what I realized was we cling to these things because again, they, they make us feel sometimes it's a sense of obligation almost, you know, oh, that was my grandmother's China. Have you taken it out of the closet once? Right. And, and so there's that, but all the attachment is, is to our emotional connection to this thing. And when we are able to let go of things, we realize that none of it really matters. I have a, a statue downstairs of a dog. It's like one of the only things from my childhood home. That's a story for another day that I have. And. Every time my kids get rambunctious, I'm like, that statue breaks. You're going to have to find a new place to live, right? And I, well, yeah, mother of the year. But like I say things like that. And then I had a moment of, if they break it, what will I do? 
And then my thought was, you will feel crappy for a moment, you'll clean it up, and you'll move on. It's just a thing. I've only attached, it's the only childhood memoir or, you know, memorabilia, whatever you call it, that I have. And when you watch shows like Hoarders, you know, every single story, it comes from trauma. That was my mother's such and such. That was my uncle's such and such. You know, I need this gum wrapper because I feel safe or I feel loved. It all comes back to reconciling our own imbalances, you know? Yeah. I found it really interesting. I live with someone who saves things, not a hoarder, but saves things. So he's horrified because I get a like a, a card in the mail. I read it. I feel touched or whatever. And then I throw it away. And he's yeah, like, like, what's the rule? Like, how long? Do you hold it? <laughs> and he's always like, how can you just throw that away? And it's like, the important thing's not the piece of paper. It's the, It's how I felt when I read it. I won't forget that. But yeah, yeah it, it's, it's a very different perspective, I think, on life to even understand that concept. And then when you realize the strength or the power of the emotional attachment to that thing, to me, it's almost a way of not dealing with the thing because you've got the physical, you know, replacement. Yeah, like you it. put it into yeah, that thing, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so. it robs you of your peace. My husband is a guy that's got to have 50 of everything. If I need a C battery, he's got to have 50 of them. And the thing is, well, what if I need it? Well, what that yes. the information that I get is you live in fear of lack. And that comes from something that you have to you have to look at and you have to reconcile. And then, of course, he says something like you and your root causes. And then it's a thing and we move on. But it, it's it really it stems from fear, fear of loss, fear of lack, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I even wonder, too, is it fear of forgetting whatever the emotion was about that thing? Like you're afraid you'll forget. So you have to have it there or something. And I'm not I'm sure it's probably different for a lot of people. But yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah, I, I'm pretty I feel pretty rigid about the whole accumulating too much stuff, you know, and I have too much stuff now and I try not to, so I don't want more, but <laughs> I think it's something worth thinking about if, as people look around their homes or look in their drawers, like, what do you have in there? When's the last time you touched it or looked at it or even thought about it? It's not the thing. So thank you for yeah. that. During this, the great resignation or the great reshuffle, as everybody's calling it, I think a lot of people are really struggling with their career identities right now. And you talk about that. So I was wondering if you could share a little more about what the loss of a career identity might mean. I exhale because that was another little piece that I think was still in there. (laughs) (laughs) I was a, a career educator for about 25 years. At about the 20 year mark, I figured out by happenstance, and I always joke when I say happenstance or laugh, I picked up a paintbrush for the first time since my adolescence and ignited, it, it woke something up that I just couldn't stop painting. And to make this brief, from the span of January 2015 to June 2017, it evolved in such a way that I wound up quitting my, again, you know, my 25 year career in education, my six figure job, sold the house, moved out into, I say the woods, but a rural area and painted. And, and now I'm doing these incredible things. I'm, I'm making money. I'm successful as a creative. An author, an artist, gallery, whatever. Okay, the 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 web the website. But when I was leaving my job, it wasn't that simple. It wasn't that pretty. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to paint now. I'm going to leave. What happens is when we expand and we no longer resonate with 
whatever situation we're in, whether it be a relationship or a career or whatever it is, that you start to feel the dissonance. And it's not just, ooh, that's uncomfortable. Like things happen like, oh, is he always that annoying? Or how come they're not giving me the right hours? Or how come in my situation, again, in education, how come they're bringing all these kids in that don't fit the curriculum? It was a private school, but yet expect me to wave my magic wand and make them be successful. It's unfair to the children and stuff, all of that. And I was going through that. And I wound up having a little, uh, we'll call it a little thing, like a snafu. And it ro- finally prompted me. It was like, it is your time to leave. And at that time, I had just had my children, you know, married my husband because um, I had the career first. So that was my identity. I was, you know, Dana Sardano, director of student development. I hung my hat on that. I thought that made me important, I guess. And then... I became a mom and a wife and an artist and all these things. And then these other things came into play. And I finally had my, you have to read the book, but I finally had my my tipping point and I left my job. But I didn't realize I was Miss Sardano for my entire adult life. And now, even though I'm an artist now, I, I had to, I mourned it for a year. It was crazy. And there was such resistance from me in the last year I was there. Because I knew within six months, I'm like, I got to get out of here. But I stayed another year. And it was horrendous. It's like being in a relationship, ending it with your heart, and then staying six months because your name is on the lease. Like, it was like that. Like, I was going to work every day. I joke, but I was like pulling my eyelashes out every day. Like, I can't believe I'm going here. And it, it it was, so that was ugly. And then after I left, I didn't know who I was anymore, even though I was a wife and I was a mother. So I say to people who are kind of reshifting what they're doing, it's amazing that when we surrender and we just say, it doesn't matter It doesn't like that attachment to the the identity doesn't make me who I am. What makes me who I am is just being who I am. And if I don't know who that is, the best way to figure that out is keep doing things till something feels good and then do more of that and do more of that. And you'll begin to see who you are pretty fast. Yeah, it's it struck me from several perspectives. One was so many people leaving their jobs or trying to figure out what they want to do and then getting stuck because of this, because they didn't realize they were so attached to that identity of the, of yeah. their career that they don't feel like they know what their identity is. Uh, another one is, I just read a statistic the other day that it's something like 10,000 people each day in the United States turn 65, which means they're uh, technically of retirement age. And the statistics are not great, right? Once people retire about their health. And I think part of it's because they don't, not that they don't know what to do hobby-wise or something, they don't know who they are. I think it really has an impact on us and we don't realize yes. it's because we've become so attached to that identity. And you do say in the book, like the second question anyone asks you after your name is, what do you do? And it's true. I started thinking through all of my conversations. That is the second question. What do you do? So I, I think that's also worth, everything in the book is worth considering. But I just really think some of these are quite profound right now with everything that we're going through. All right, one more on attachment and I'll stop with the attachment, but it's just such an important (laughs) part of practicing mindfulness. It's on relationships. So there are many people who think that there's nothing wrong with being attached to someone. So what happens when we do that and where do or how do expectations come into play? 
So that goes back to this idea that we all have our belief systems based on whatever our experience was. And again, it doesn't have to be traumatic. It just could be going through life. You know, you, you gather these beliefs. And one of the beliefs that we as a society have gathered is, you know, blood is thicker than water, right? Or, you know, till death do us part, right? And we have these beliefs that are really not based in logic, they're, they're not even really based in anything other than somebody told us and we never questioned it. Like there's a Santa Claus, right? Or a fairy tale, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly, right? They live happily ever after, you know? So one of the things that I think is really, really important is, again, we examine what we believe about ourselves. I tell a story in the book how I had a tenuous relationship at best with my mother my whole life. And towards the end of her life, probably in the last five or so years of her life, she and I, we became estranged. And it was without placing blame, but it was on her. Like if we were going to reconcile, it was for her because again, you read it, you got a sense of, of, of what happened. And I actually, I mourned that relationship for years. So she wound up dying and dying without a relationship with me and not having seen her grandchildren in a few years. And right before she died, my brother, who that's toxic relationship with, who I was estranged from as well, sent me a text that was, uh, you could, the tone was belligerent and it was something to, whatever it was, it was inviting me again. I'm not here to rake anybody through, through the mud, but it was inviting me into a hornet's nest while they were all in pain and all grieving and all sad, inviting me in. So they had a whooping boys, you know, for, for lack of a better way of putting it. And I chose not to go. And I had to look at my beliefs and ignore the critics of, but that's your mother, right? It's the only mother you have and all of these things. And I had to ask myself, how does it serve me? to go. Because we don't ask ourselves that because especially as women, God forbid we serve ourselves. You know what I mean? Because only selfish people do that. Again, another conditioned belief when you hear the word selfish, everybody gets a ooh. But the reality is you have to be of the self before you can be anything to anybody else. That's right. I digress. So I had to make that decision and I had to really, really look at it and I had to do it without feeling guilt or shame. And the reality was if my mother wanted to make peace, she would have made an effort to make peace. And by me, because here's the evidence, because I had to step back and look at it logically. And if I had stepped into what I call a hornet's nest, the only thing that would have come out of it was my being abused and my just doing it because it's in air quotes, of course, the right thing to do based on a belief, as we know, doesn't serve me. So, I mean, I hope that answered your question. Yeah. You know, I just had this discussion last week with someone about right and wrong and saying there is no one right or wrong. It's what's right for us. It's not about one global right or wrong for anyone. So I I respect that you could assess that a situation from, you know, looking through that lens to say, this is not going to serve me. And I don't mean that yeah. either in a selfish way. It means it, it's destructive if you do it, right? So it's, it's really self-care and, and self-worth and self-value. So I absolutely do really admire that because it is hard. There's a lot of pressure from society about what we are and are not supposed to do. Yeah. And that's um, the work. That's the work. That is the, work. the struggle. And that's the difference between discernment and judgment. Yeah. I discerned the situation. I didn't judge her. Right. I had compassion for her. 
doesn't mean I need to be a part of it. Right, exactly. I do want to just touch on another recommendment, the eighth one, which is about taking care of our bodies. And the reason is, I think we're in trouble. (laughs) The combination of our lifestyles and our eating habits and the quality of food, there's just so many, the environment. And so I do think this needs to be maybe higher on people's radar. And I was wondering if you could talk about our physical guidance system. Oh, <laughs> okay. So I mentioned the emotional guidance system. Yeah. You know, if it feels good, you do it. If it doesn't feel good, you steer you steer away from it. And if you feel like you're doing things that don't feel good, you need to question your beliefs about why you do that. That's the most watered down version I could give you. The physical guidance system is similar to the emotional guidance system in that your body is telling you also, right? If I'm on the computer all day and I'm getting a migraine and I'm ignoring it or popping a pill then I am not listening to my brain telling me you're on the computer too long. Your eyes are strained, right? This shows itself in so many ways. We have so many diseases like lupus and RA and fibromyalgia and all of those autoimmune diseases where our bodies are actually attacking themselves, right? Or ourselves. There are so many things that they start with. I don't want to get into this whole energetic conversation. I I don't think that this is, you know, the appropriate forum or time or place, but truly we all are energy and and, and we have these energetic components in our body and our emotions are energy. So if I am ignoring my emotional guidance system and my energy gets stuck, or I have a physical thing that is like a nothing, like my stomach bothers me when I go to work. (laughs) If your stomach is bothering you right in your solar plexus, which is about anxiety and confidence and all of those things, maybe you should assess your environment, you know? So, so when we ignore these minor physical guidance, you know, the, the physical cues, and when we ignore the emotional cues, which create stagnant energy, it can create maladies in our bodies. My entire young life, I was stifled and, you know, told that I'm too this, too that, and too, and too much the other. I was never really able to be my authentic self because it was, again, too much of this, that, and the other. And when 25 years old, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And it's interesting, if you want to get a little bit metaphysical, it's right in the throat chakra, which is about our living our truth, our speaking our truth and living authentically, setting boundaries. And if you notice, if you look at the stats, Women who are, or people who have thyroid issues or thyroid cancer are predominantly women. And typically we are taught, well, other women are taught, clearly I haven't learned it, but we're taught to, you know, to keep our mouths shut or to not, or to be what other people need us to be or whatever those things are. And, at tw- and even at 25, before I, you know, had all of this, this wisdom, I remember knowing, I remember when they did the surgery, knowing this is because I was never allowed to say what was on my mind. And I knew it then. And I, and I was a hundred percent right. Over the years, I had issues, uh, lots of issues in my uterine area, you know, whether it be fi- uh, fibroids or cysts or whatever it is. And that's your creative center. That's your passion and love for life or the, you know, your purpose or all of those things. And because I was an artist my whole life and I ignored it because of of whatever fear or um, survival skills about, you know, can't be an artist because the belief system is, you know, artists are starving, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, be a teacher, you know, that's, you know, you get paid, you know, I mean, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You get it. So I guess I'm wondering too, Along these same lines, I also call it our inner guidance system. It's Mm -hmm. our emotional 
guidance that we're, it's innate, it's in there. It's, it's a matter of whether we're paying attention or not, our physical guidance system. So do you think that those combined is part of what intuition is? Like when we're tuned in, our intuition is picking up what our system as a whole, not, not what somebody's telling us or, you know, what we believe or what doctors say or anything. Just, you know, what do you think intuition is, I guess, is the question. So in the simplest of terms, or, or I'll be as brief as I can be, you know, we have, we have seven energy centers in our body and they begin at the root and they move all the way up to the crown and each energy center developed at a different stage of, um, in our lives. So like my root it, from zero to seven years old, that's when the development was right. And then my sacral, um, from, uh, seven to 14 and so on and so forth, right? Your third eye chakra is your intuition and it's all connected to your heart so your heart your throat your third eye your crown this is all your upper stuff this is all your intuitive stuff however if you have a faulty or a damaged or an imbalanced root sacral solar plexus right which is the development is anywhere from zero to uh, i think 21 right so all and stuff that hasn't been resolved again back to the beginning creating the beliefs and the patterns and all of these things this when it's clogged it's like an engine when it's clogged when it's not when you haven't um really tended to being well there then this stuff up here, upper stuff, the intuitive stuff, isn't as acute, okay? So yes, your physical guidance system and your emotional guidance system really are your intuition. But if you are living in survival mode, right? If you are living in a place where you don't feel safe or you don't feel confident or you don't feel like you have a purpose in life or all of those things that are resonant in the lower part, then the upper part isn't going to pick up those signals. So the answer is to look at your stuff, pick it up, dust it off, spit shining a little bit, and then your intuition opens wide up, wide open. Beautiful. Well, I guess I'd like to close with maybe any suggestions for our listeners if they're feeling stuck or unwell or unhappy or I don't know, some negative pattern in life, what would you say is the very first step they could take? Ooh, I think that, you know, all of these things that I keep saying about keep returning back to the source, that's work. And that really takes a lot. But anybody right now who is feeling discontent in their lives, doesn't matter what it is. It could be as simple as I'm cold. It could be as complex as how do I get out of this relationship? Right. But anybody who's feeling discontentment in the moment, because the only moment you have is right now, is to ask yourself, what can I do in this moment to feel better? Just in this moment. So if I'm in a relationship that's unhealthy and I'm like, oh, but I can't afford to move and, you know, either this and, you know, whatever it is, it's it's complicated, right? If all of those things, but in this moment, what can I do to feel better? Well, you know what? I can look at apartments because it makes me feel better. You know what I mean? I could set a boundary in the house and say, you know what? I'm sleeping in this room from now on. There is something that I could do in this moment. And when I do that, it feels a little bit better and it gives me the strength to do the next thing. I always quote my husband, how do you eat an elephant? You know, one piece at a time. So what can I do? Anybody who's listening, what can I do right now to feel better? And you will see it will lead you to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And next thing you know, somehow you've met your goal. 
It's so true. I'm smiling because this has come up a lot lately, again, because of everybody feeling not quite clear about their careers right now. Mm-hmm. So the very first piece of advice I ever give anyone who they're miserable at work, but they quote, can't leave for some reason yeah. is I say, okay, just look for another job. Just look, you don't have to leave. Just look. Yeah. I would say 90% of the time they resolve the issue and they don't leave their job. <laughs> they just need that little I don't know, freedom to realize they have a choice, maybe. That they're not trapped. They're not trapped. Yeah. So that's great advice. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today and sharing your story and these insights that can really lead any of us towards more peace or freedom or joy. I want to say to our listeners, you can find more information on Dana's artistic work at UbuntuFishGallery.com and her global education platform at FindUniquelyU.com. And I want to say the U in there is the letter U, not Y-O-U. So find uniquelyyou.com and you'll find a link to her book on our website at a mindfulmoment.com. So thank you, Dana. Teresa, thank you. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills, paying attention to every detail of what you're doing from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, that's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like the Daily Meditation Podcast, Everything Everywhere, and Movie Therapy. We deeply appreciate your support at patreon.com slash a mindful moment. Please be sure to subscribe to A Mindful Moment and follow us on Instagram at a mindful moment podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com to access podcasts, scripts, and book recommendations. A Mindful Moment is written and hosted by Teresa McKee and or Melissa Sims. The Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll by Josh Kirsch, MediaWrite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions, 